This is the Lower Mimosley podcast, Pain Matters, and this episode uh, we're going to talk about history, not in the way you think, uh, in the way pain has evolved over time. So um, I'm quite excited about this, Lorimer. What is what is your general, what is your first thinking of history, just as a as a student, or maybe um, regret? So was it? My first, you know, when I first think of history, I think of my year 10 history teacher, actually, um, whose name I can't remember, but I, I do remember that he gave me an, an assignment to make uh, a replica of an explorer's hut in Antarctica called Mawson's Hut. And I didn't have very many skills in that, but my, my dad did. And so my dad made this great model. And I remember that I got uh, 110 out of 100 for that assignment, but my dad did it. So when I think of history, um, I, you know, I don't immediately get get too excited about it. Um, but when I think of pain history, which I don't actually know that much about, um, but I I have a deeper understanding of history since perhaps you know the 1980s. That will be interesting because I think that will be exactly the time when pain has become increasingly interesting for clinicians, for research, but also for patients. Um, we've discussed this before. It's like 50 years ago, there was the, the and it's an anniversary year. So 1973, the, the Association of the Study of Pain has been established. Um, what happened since then? And didn't didn't change. Well, one of the one of the cool things <clears throat> about the initiation of the International Association of the Study of Pain, yeah, and it's the fiftieth anniversary this year. There's an there's an issue of the Premier or the IASB journal called Pain that is full of tributes to the last fifty years. So if if people are interested in that in the last fifty years. Uh, from multiple perspectives, you could go to Pain the journal for the issue that uh, came out in I think I think mid October. Um, the the couple of things that were interesting about where it started, IASP was started by uh, I think a group of men, um, white, old ish, probably actually middle aged at that stage, men um, who saw the need for. Uh, for this association, uh, and I think they were all at the University of Washington, except for Patrick Wall, uh, who at that stage was at MIT, I think, in in Boston. Um, but I think what what had happened leading up to that that really generated a lot of oomph was this gate control theory, and the gate control theory from Melzack and Wall. Uh, I'm pretty sure Patrick Wall was Ron Melzack's PhD student, or the other way around. I think, I think Pat was Ron's student. But they proposed this gate control theory that really, really changed the course of pain history. And they that was published, uh, I think, the first in an obscure way in 1963. But the first time it really got a lot of airtime was in this uh, paper in the journal Science. So it's a very reputable journal although very interestingly <clears throat> publications in science and nature the two sort of biggest science journals 
are less likely to be replicated by other people than publications in some of the other journals. Quite interesting, which means there, you know, maybe, maybe some of the stuff in there we shouldn't believe it just because it's in science. But um, they they published this theory called the gate control theory. Uh, and apparently they they wrote it the first version of it on a napkin. Although Mick Thacker, good mate of mine, could correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on that. But I think it was sort of a napkin in a pub, sort of thing. And and they proposed that the, there is a message that comes into the spinal cord from the body that might be, for example, saying danger. It's a danger message that we now call nociceptive input. Uh, no C meaning danger, septive meaning receptor, so sort of danger receptor input. Uh, and alongside that is input from non-danger receptors, so the big fat myelinated neurons. And the gate control theory said that the input from those other neurons can close the pain gate so that uh, less information gets through. And then the other the other influence on the pain gate was what they described as descending control from the brain. But that got lost in the gate control theory. The, the, the emphasis really was on those other wide, they're called wide diameter fast conducting neurons. And I call them the rub it better neurons. You know, when you hit yourself and it hurts and you rub it better and it hurts a bit less, um, closing the gate is one way of interpreting that. So I think in 1973 it was it was all this hullabaloo, you know, really a real excitement about this pain field and the opportunities that that might be presenting, uh, and and understanding that you know there's a lot of things going on when someone's in pain, and we can start to address some of those things. Join us in York, United Kingdom, on the 14th and the 15th of June, 2024 two enlightening days of learning. Meet the renowned Professor Lorimer Mosley. Discover how understanding pain shapes your practice and empowers you to treat pain effectively. This course will give you the confidence and competence you need. Master Sessions, live with Professor Lorimer Mosley in York, United Kingdom. Don't miss this opportunity. Just now, MasterSessions.academy. Your journey to effective pain treatment starts here. Because it was so mind-blowing by the time, who was this interesting for researchers, clinicians, for patients as well? You reckon? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I. Uh... I was in primary school in the 1970s, so <laughs> I have no recollection of it, obviously, as a, as a health professional or anything. But um, the impression I get, and it's a really interesting read to read the very first editorial in the journal Pain, which was written by Patrick Wall, where uh, he talks about the, the, the distinction between uh, pain and a sensory signal. So way back then, he's saying, you know, we've we've got to design better experiments that uh, get to pain, not just the the nociceptive 
signal. We need to uh, encompass all of the bits of what is now known as the biopsychosocial model. So George Engel was writing about the biopsychosocial model at around about the same time, but not applying it to pain. But Patrick Wall, I think, had a very good understanding of where the pain field would go. Uh, and I think it was exciting for researchers because uh, they, it, the gate control theory was one of the ways that opened up a whole new bunch of experiments that we could do. Uh, and it led ultimately to the development of TENS, you know, these electrical simulation devices to, to activate those wide diameter neurons. And, and that excited clinicians. Uh, and I think it, I think it, uh, probably start to improve things for patients. Um, I mean, several of those people that were in the first first executive of the IAS were involved in uh, really biopsychosocial care. So the the advent and development of cognitive behavioural therapy happened across those times. So that that's been great for patients. From that theoretical model of the pain gain control have you what is the journey of that so is it still relevant would you say it's still a part of history that still is been proven right or it's been replicated in a way what is it what's still left of that really important finding or model yeah i think i think it's still relevant for sure but i i think that the principles of the of the gate control theory, <clears throat> if we were to summarize them as, or, or maybe summarize and update them to our current understanding of, of how this part of the spinal cord works. So for people who are completely unfamiliar with the gate control theory, the, gen, the, the place that this is thought to happen is inside the spinal cord where the neurons come from the body, and they go into uh, the dorsal horn. So if you look at the spinal cord from the top cross section, it looks a bit like a butterfly. Uh, and it's got two big wings and two small antennas, if you like. And the dorsal horns are the antennas. And information comes in from, from nociceptors into that dorsal horn. And the idea of the gate control theory is, is that Alongside that is a wide diameter neuron input and through a, a simple circuitry that, uh, that will determine what message goes up to the brain, there is this opportunity for the gate to open and shut. Uh, so the, the principle that there is processing that happens in the dorsal horn uh, and the end result of that processing includes what message is sent to the brain that principle i think is still intact actually and um, we just now know that there are it's it's extraordinarily complex in there it's not a simple circuitry and it wasn't that long ago that we were teaching it as a relay station and it's you know it's it's way beyond a relay station in fact, if you can get, if you do understand a bit of how that dorsal horn is structured, there's there's one layer of it uh, that is thought to be the place where the incoming neurons stop and release their neurotransmitters and interface with 
the rest of the central nervous system. But within that that layer, which is thought to be the most nociceptive layer, uh, about three percent, or about ninety-seven percent of the neurons are interneurons. I might have that number slightly wrong, but it's it's above ninety. It's it's a the massive majority in there are interneurons, and and what that means is that that the dorsal horn is actually doing a massive amount of processing and is under a massive amount of influence and different things influencing each other and open to different molecules having effects. And so the gate control theory was a, was simplifying all of that into three or four synapses. Uh, and, I, and ironically, we, we actually moved from the gate control theory to an even simpler idea of really one synapse, you know, like there's a synapse between the nociceptor and the ascending second order neuron. Uh, and that synapse was influenced by wide diameter range, uh, by wide diameter neurons, so the Robert Batten neurons, and by descending neurons. So we simplified the gate control theory that was way too simple in the first place. But now I think we recognize the power of the spinal cord. There's this guy called Bob Kogel who works at Cincinnati Kids Hospital. He's, he's a great scientist and just a great fellow. Uh, and he has this phrase about the, uh, the awesome computational power of the spinal cord. It's not even the brain. So in answer to your question, it's still relevant, but um, we have to... I think we have to embrace the reality that it's way more complex down there. If there was stage one, if you like, what would be stage two in the progress of the understanding of this amazing pain mechanism and systems in our bodies? Yeah, I, I think the field took off again um, from a neurophysiological perspective as brain imaging tech became better. Um, the advent of functional magnetic resonance imaging uh, and more and more sophisticated EEG. So that's the one with the the helmet with or the cap with all the electrode, recording electrodes and highly sophisticated physics uh, and mathematical modeling underpinning those techniques allowed, allowed scientists to gain an understanding of what parts of the brain are active when someone has a painful stimulus on them. And I think that gave a lot of legitimacy to the clinical observations that when pain persists, people become more sensitive. Uh, the clinical observation that neuropathic pain uh, is associated with different feelings from non-neuropathic pain. And then we could have brain imaging results that say, hey, it's also associated with different patterns of brain activity. Uh, and I think that led to a, a, I guess, a tension shifting towards the brain as a key player in pain and in the differences across people across trials in experiments in what a sti what stimulus what a stimulus does to to their brain but there is this, there's a bit of a 
there is a bit of a trap here, I reckon, Bart, uh, when we get ex- uh, get excited about brain imaging because we always have to cross-reference it to what people say they're feeling. Uh, and it's an easy trap to fall into to say, oh, well, people when people say they're feeling a burning pain, this is what happens in the brain. And therefore, when this is what happens in the brain, it must be burning pain. And it's a bit of a risk of a circular argument. So we have to be careful, I think, about that. Uh, but going back to your question, <laughs> I, I, I do find this very interesting. I ramble a bit, I apologise. But going to your question, I think the, the fact that we're now able to uh, get a window into the brain and more recently a window into the immune system takes pain research and care and theory up a notch each time those sort of things happen. The risk of, of the bias towards the brain, that is clearly, when did that happen? When... Uh, I, I imagine that it, it happened in line with, with the advent of the technology that, that let us look into the brain, if you like. And it was so groovy. I mean, most of us in the science or clinical space can remember the first time we saw a, a functional magnetic resort or a functional imaging scan and you see the blobs. I remember that. <laughs> so, it must be somewhere early 90s. Is that, is that, is that like a later 90s? Yeah, I guess. I, I don't really know. I mean, I started my PhD in 98 and it was a thing by then um and i th- i do think that it it a lot of clinical players um you know a lot of a lot of clinicians jumped on that because it's got great narrative power you know it's got a great storytelling power to to put a brain image in front of someone to legitimize their experience is a is a powerful thing to do and to see a change in brain activity in two different time points and attribute that to something you can do, some intervention you can do. Uh, yeah, it does. It gives great, great power. I, I suspect that that was, that, that emerged during the nineties. I don't really know. I suspect it was the nineties. Just a step back as, as there were a few other findings, I guess that were very very interesting. I, I, I recalling central sensitization, for example. Yeah, I reckon that was the the most the the <clears throat> the biggest impact finding after gate control theory was this finding from Clifford Wolf that neurons in the spinal cord were more easily fired in a rat that had a neural injury in their in their paw, for example, and that became called that was called central sensitization and. We still hear that, don't we? We still hear that around the trap. Someone's got central sensitization pain. And that's that's the direct descendant of Clifford Wolf's discovery in 1983. That's worth another episode, Luz. Uh, <laughs> central sensitization really is, I reckon. Um, because even Clifford Wolf now, he, he published a paper in 2014, I think it was, reviewed beautifully by Tori Madden, actually, in body and mind which is now with IASP relief uh, but you could google Tory Madden uh, and central sensitization for the review of Clifford Wolf's commentary um, to say well what is central sensitization now with all all that we know and it's certainly not 
what it was in 1983. Let's finish here and we're going to use this cliffhanger. So we're going to next episode is going to be all about central sensitization. If that's if that's if you're happy to do so. Sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Let's finish it over here. And, and um, so in not too long, you will learn all about central sensitization. I'm really excited about this next one. So uh, hang in there. Um, we'll come back with everything about central sensitization as soon as you we, we're ready for recording. All right. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for joining again, Loz. Um, Thanks, Bart. Definitely going to um, um, going to have a few episodes, I guess, on on the history and some big findings that uh, has shaped our ideas of pain and neurophysiology and our understanding of pain. So um, that's something I'm looking forward to hear from you and to discuss. So thank you. Um, see you next time.